the Al Dente podcast. Today we've got the Gen Com of Pops again with us and we'll be discussing ILA 2.8, Mr. Robert Burns. So do you guys want to just introduce yourselves again in case this is the first time someone's listening in? Hi, so I'm Ella from BDS2. Hi, I'm Delina from BDS3. Awesome. Okay. So we'll get started. We'll, um, we'll jump right in. But first of all, before we start discussing ILA and academic material, just a disclaimer that we're just students just like you. So neither us nor the AUDSS um, take responsibility or liability for educational advice provided in this podcast. Please do your own research for the topics we discuss. Use of this information is strictly at your own risk. Okay, Ella, do you want to start us off and just present the case to us first? Yep, sure. Um, so with ILA 2.8, our patient is Mr. Robert Burns. Um, so he's a 25-year-old Indigenous Australian man and he lives in Catherine, which is a small town in the Northern Territory. So Mr. Burns has come to your dental clinic. You're working at a government community dental clinic here in Catherine. Um, and he's presented for a checkup. He hasn't been to see a dental practitioner in a little while. In terms of his background, Mr. Burns has rheumatic heart disease after contracting rheumatic fever as a child. Um, and he also has a family history of type 2 diabetes mellitus, although he hasn't been diagnosed with that himself. Um, in terms of his social history, he recently started a vet course through Charles State University and he plays for a local footy team. So then if we go into the issues of ILA 2.8. Um, for me, the first key issue was about the patient. So Mr. Robert Burns is a 25-year-old Indigenous Australian male living as a student in Catherine, and he's presented for a dental checkup after not visiting for some time. Then the next important part is about his medical history. So Mr. Burns has rheumatic heart disease due to contracting paediatric rheumatic fever. Um, my third issue was about how he has a family history of type 2 diabetes. And then my fourth point was from those images and photos. Um, so there are two photos and two bite winks that you get with the ILA. Um, and I've just jotted down that he has sort of mild to moderate attrition of his anterior teeth. And he's also got heavy calculus, particularly on the lingual of the mandibular anteriors. And if you look at the bite wings, you can also see radiopacities on them, indicative of subgingival calculus. Um, and generally, his upper and lower gingiva appear to be a little red and bulbous. They've got rounded, rounded gingival margins. Awesome. Great presentation. So we'll move on. So I get the first question that we had was what the difference between acute rheumatic fever, rheumatic heart disease and infective endocarditis is. So rheumatic fever is basically an autoimmune response to group A streptococcus bacteria. These bacteria cause infections in various parts of the body. Um, for example, um, it, in the throat, it causes strep throat and it can also affect the skin. Um, acute rheumatic, I mean, yeah, acute rheumatic fever um, cause, can cause tissue degeneration um, of especially this is of concern especially when it is impacting the heart valve tissue so moving on what's rheumatic heart disease is when there is actually chronic damage to the heart valves because of the rheumatic fever and so the the damage can happen shortly after untreated or undertreated um strep a um infections and then 
Infective endocarditis is basically infection of the damaged heart valve. So infection of the heart tissue um, that that has basically been damaged from acute rheumatic fever, which has gotten rheumatic heart disease. And then once that becomes infected, that becomes infective endocarditis. So there's a lot of new terminology here, but I definitely recommend you guys doing some of your own research just to understand it a bit more. Okay. Next question is, how do you explain rheumatic fever to a patient? Because sometimes people will be like, yeah, I've had fevers before, what, and, or I have rheumatoid arthritis. Does that mean I have rheumatic fever? So you have to explain to them because sometimes they'll look at you blankly and you have to be able to understand the questions that you're ex asking your patients. So a simple way to describe rheumatic fever is that it starts as a sore throat, but your body gets very sick. Um, and as your body is trying to fight the disease, your body will also get damaged um, and you will probably end up being hospitalized and have to take antibiotics every month for months or years. Um, and at that point, once you say that they have to take antibiotics every month for a few months or years, then they're like, oh, no, 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 no. I've never had rheumatic fever. So that usually clears it up for them. Does that make sense, you guys? Yeah, okay. It's still clear. Okay, that's good. Okay, so if someone does say that they have rheumatic fever, there are a few follow-up questions that you should ask them. So, for example, who is managing their rheumatic fever? Um, what type of antibiotics are they taking? How often are they taking these antibiotics? Is it just a course of antibiotics or is it a monthly injection? Um, have they had any recurring episodes of rheumatic fever or have they developed any allergies to medications, for example, penicillin? And whether they've ever had rheumatic heart disease or infective endocarditis. Okay, so um, the next question will be answered by Delina. Yes, yeah, so the next question is what groups should have endocarditis prophylaxis? Um, so now that we've figured out what rheumatic heart disease is and the differences and follow-up questions, um, ideally, um, just talking about the dental relevance, um, those with rheumatic heart disease should be having endocarditis prophylaxis. Um, and I'm just going to refer to the Australian Therapeutics Guideline for oral and um, the dental areas, which is basically... Um, a dental's, a, a dentist's holy Bible, basically. Um, there's a phrase in there that says, um, infective endocarditis prophylaxis, which is the use of antibiotics to prevent infective endocarditis is used for patients with specific cardiac conditions. And if they're undergoing, um, certain dental procedures and it lists out some examples and I'm just going to name a few. So the, uh, patients with Prosthetic cardiac valves, such as um, uh, transcatheter implanted prostheses, um, previous infective endocarditis, uh, congenital heart disease, and like Mr. Burns, we've got uh, patients with rheumatic heart disease. Uh, so, yeah, these are usually the groups that should be having endocarditis prophylaxis. So, does that mean that every patient who has rheumatic heart disease should get um, endocarditis prophylaxis? Um, no, it does also depend, uh, it does depend on what the follow-up questions and what you find out from those follow-up questions, whether the severity of it and like, um, you know, the dosage of their antibiotics, their allergies and all that. Um, and yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. So, so basically not everyone, um, with, um, who's had rheumatic heart disease should have endocarditis prophylaxis. It's only specific subgroups of the population. Um, these subgroups are people of Aboriginal and Indigenous background, as well as people of low SES, which is basically everyone that will be seeing in SADS. Yeah, and obviously I think it also um, depends on the procedure that they're undergoing as well. Obviously, if it's just an exam, like you're just looking around, that's not really as necessary as if you're going to be doing like um, say a biopsy or an implant placement. Um, and yeah, it also depends on the procedure. So, yeah. 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 Great. Okay. Next question is, uh, what are the implications of rheumatic heart disease on oral health and dental management? So basically, um, if a patient has had rheumatic heart disease, you want to be careful that they won't have bacteremia. So basically bacteria entering the um, bloodstream and the blood supply that can result in infective endocarditis. But the thing is, bacteremia can actually result from a lot of normal daily activities, for example, toothbrushing and flossing, or um, even like use of toothpicks. So to be honest, the frequency of and the exposure to bacteremia is greater through routine daily activities. That doesn't mean that we should be reckless, but it's definitely something that we need to still educate our patients on. So we, for patients with rheumatic heart disease, um, it's recommended that you have to give them effective tailored oral hygiene instructions as well as motivate them to come to the dentist. For Mr. Robert Burns in particular, why hasn't he been to the dentist in a long time? That's a question that we need to ask. Um, it would, it, you might consider more frequent checkups and cleans dependent on obviously other risk factors. Um, whether he actually has uncontrolled diabetes would be a good question to ask. Um, other effects may be, um, if the patient plays sports, for example, we know Mr. Robert Burns plays sports, so it might be a good idea to make a mouth guard for him and educate him on what to do for dental trauma. Um, if we if we need to give him um, endocarditis prophylaxis just for a subgingival scale and clean, then the risk of infective endocarditis is probably really much higher if he actually knocks one of his teeth out. Um, and then, um, um, there is also in the therapeutic guidelines, it's also recommended that there is a timely treatment of all bacterial infections, particularly those caused by, um, Staphylococcus or Streptococci, as well as avoiding intravascular catheters and invasive procedures unless necessary. Um, and also active discouragement of tattooing and piercing, as well as intravenous drug use. So, yeah, those basically are the main indications of rheumatic heart disease. Okay, next question. For what procedures should we ask Mr. Burns to have endocarditis prophylaxis? Yeah, so like I mentioned before from the oral and dental therapeutics guidelines, and I briefly um skimmed over it um, just before as well. Um, I said that um, procedures such as 
um, manipulation of the gingival or periapical tissues or perforation of the oral mucosa, such as if you're doing an extraction or an implant placement, um, a biopsy or removal of soft tissue or bone, uh, subgingival scaling, root planing, um, and yeah, procedures like that. Um, other dental procedures um, that don't involve those, um, you will not require endocarditis prophylaxis. Um, in saying that though, um, since um, since Mr. Burns would most likely require um, endocarditis prophylaxis, um, the next question logically would be, what is the endocarditis prophylaxis regimen that we should ask him to take to prevent infective endocarditis? And um, also referring back to the Australian Therapeutics Guidelines, um, we should be prescribing him amoxicillin 2 grams um, orally and 60 minutes before the procedure. Awesome. That's great. So now we'll go um, now for a message from our sponsors. Right Evans Partners, the dental, accounting and finance specialists. Our people are here to assist you in every step of your career. Whether you're a student, dentist or business owner, we have the tools and the experience to see you succeed. Our dental graduate program provides you with a complimentary tax return or business activity statement and a financial health check to help you kickstart your career. Contact us today via our website, Facebook and Instagram or on 8208 4777 to start planning your financial future. Web with you every step of the way. All right. So um, next question is, if Mr. Burns tells us he is allergic to an antibiotic, what further questions should we ask him? So first of all, um, a lot of patients will come in and they'll report an allergy to a medication. But the thing is, when they took that medication, they were probably pretty sick already. And so that virus interacting with the antibiotic they took probably gave them a reaction that wasn't great. That doesn't mean that that's an allergy, so though. And it's important that we don't recklessly prescribe um, other forms of antibiotics that are not um, penicillin, for example, because that's the most commonly reported antibiotic that is um, that patients are allergic to. Um, so we have to ask quite a few questions and we also have to discern what type of reaction they had, whether it was a severe or non-severe reaction and whether it was actually an allergy. So first of all, ask him, okay, do you remember what antibiotic you took? Like, what was it called? Um, sometimes patients won't remember, but they might remember how often they took it. Um, for example, metronidazole you take twice a day. Or, okay, for odontogenic infections, you take metronidazole twice a day, amoxicillin three times a day, um, PEN5 would be four times a day, and amoxiclav would be two times a day. So if they can tell you how often they took it, you can kind of narrow it down through there. Um, this also, you can also use this trick for if a patient was prescribed an antibiotic by a GP and they had like a, like a swelling or something, um, and you need to know what type of antibiotic they were actually prescribed, you can ask them this as well. Um, what type of reaction did the patient have? Was it a diffuse or localized rash with no other symptoms or did they have urticaria, swelling of the mouth and throat? How long after taking the antibiotics? did the reaction occur? Was it on the same day or was it a few days after starting taking the antibiotics? How long ago was the reaction? Was it more or less than 10 years ago? If it's more than 10 years ago, then the risk of it um, 
having the same reaction is probably pretty low. How was it treated? Did he have to go to the hospital? Has he ever taken antibiotics since? What type of antibiotics? Does he know the name? Maybe because there's quite a few different brand names of antibiotics out there. Maybe he's taken it again. He didn't even realize. Okay. So that's basically the follow-up question. Let's go on to our next question. What antibiotics we should, should we prescribe Mr. Burns for endocarditis prophylaxis if he reports hypersensitivity to penicillin? And why is it not a good idea to prescribe this antibiotic to anyone who reports hypersensitivity to penicillin? Yeah, so um, just referring back to the Australian Therapeutics Guidelines, um, it says that for those with immediate, um, either severe or non-severe, or delayed severe hypersensitivity to penicillins, um, we should be prescribing clindamycin 600 milligrams orally, um, either 60 to 120 minutes before the procedure. Um, we can prescribe it. It's not like it's not a good idea. It's just that we shouldn't prescribe it straight away or just prescribe it blindly because there is a risk of pseudomembranous colitis. And that's basically inflammation of the colon um, due to an overgrowth of bacteria. And this basically causes like life-threatening diarrhea. So um, like Jingyang was saying before, it's really important to ask additional questions like, are they really allergic? Um, was it just a headache? How do they know they're allergic? How did they find out? Um, what tests or results did they do to find this out? And what's the specific reaction? And yeah, just going back to all those additional questions that Jingyang was talking about before. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Um, okay. Awesome. So why do we, so going back to one of our key issues. So why do we actually care that Mr. Burns has a history of type two diabetes? Well, has a family history of type two diabetes. Okay. So even though Mr. Burns doesn't have diabetes himself, we care about his family history because diabetes, um, including type two can be hereditary. Um, so that's in two senses. Obviously, it does have a genetic predisposition aspect to it, which is often what we think about in terms of a hereditary disease. Um, but also, you have to consider that type 2 diabetes is considered sort of a lifestyle disease and lifestyle factors do tend to run in families. Um, if Mr. Burns down the track then does end up developing diabetes while he's still a patient of ours, um, we need to consider all the things we would normally consider for a diabetic patient. For example, um, the link between periodontal health um, and blood glucose levels, and that's a two-way relationship. So um, poor periodontal health can uh, impact how well he's managing his blood glucose levels and vice versa is also true. Um, you'd also want to consider how well he's controlling his blood sugar in terms of coming to appointments. So is there a risk of him having a hypoglycemic episode and maybe collapsing in the dental chair? Or is there a certain time that we can schedule his appointments that will work better for him? Yeah. So now that he's told us that he has that history of type 2 diabetes, um, we need to think about what kind of follow-up questions can we ask him. So we definitely want to know when he was diagnosed with diabetes um, and that will just give us an idea of how long he's had it, maybe how long he has been managing it for. Um, and then we need to ask what he does to manage his diabetes. Um, and we're going to listen to him. He'll tell us everything he's been doing, maybe lifestyle changes that he's been making or maybe he's taking a medication. And we should ask if we feel it's working well for him. Um, if he does mention medications, we always, of course, need to ask what medications he's taking, what dose and how frequently. 
And the other thing we can ask him is, does he see a regular healthcare provider to help manage his diabetes? Um, and that's somebody who, it gives us an idea of how well he's managing it, but it also is somebody who we can maybe communicate with if we need to. Um, and something to keep in mind with Mr. Burns specifically, I think, is that often we think that he might be seeing somebody like a GP or maybe an endocrinologist for his diabetes. Um, but if we consider his cultural background, he may actually be under the care of somebody like an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health worker or possibly even a traditional healer. Um, so that's something that we'd have to ask him and listen to his specific health needs. Yeah, awesome. That's really thorough. And even if he doesn't have diabetes, it wouldn't hurt just to be like, okay, are you getting like, how often do you see um, your local healthcare worker just to check up on your overall health? Um, just so that it can be detected if he does have diabetes. Okay, awesome. Okay, so that's almost the end of today's episode, but we um, there are a few BDS2 ILA questions that um, we think would be a good idea to answer. So the first one is, um, actually, Ella, do you want to ask these to us? Okay, sure. I'll be with the interviewer. <laughs> um, so first of all, how would you recommend distributing and coordinating tasks within your ILA groups? Awesome. Do you want to have a go answering first, Selena? Sure. Um, I think from my past experience, um, it's more like a first come, first serve. And if there's like, um, if there's like an uneven, like if the number of questions don't match up to the people in your group, we kind of just find the hardest question to do or the one that takes the longest time and just split it in half and just give that to two people. Other than that, um, it's not really a meticulous system that we use. It's just like, Oh, I'll do question one. All right, finally, you have it. And the next person just goes. And then, yeah, it's not really a system to it. But, yeah, how about you, Jingyang? Yeah, I think, yeah, it's it's similar. And everyone has, like, everyone in the group knows how, how it should be split, like, knows that it's important to be fair. I never really was part of the groups that would be, like, there would be one person that would put the whole document together. I think everyone would just... Put, arrange their document by themselves and now in fourth year um we don't do ILAs in groups anymore we just it's kind of like um it is still a case scenario but then we just discuss the second like the review session will be like us discussing treatment plans so everyone has to do their own treatment plan sometimes we submit the treatment plan but it, it is less of a um group work but yeah for sure make it Try and split it up as fair as you can. And then with different, with each ILA kind of rotate it around so that the person with the largest um, workload last time won't have the most again. And most people in the group will know like, oh yeah, this person did, didn't do as much or this person did a lot. I don't know. Does that kind of answer the question? Do you reckon, Ella? I think it does. Yeah. I mean, that, that all makes sense. Sounds fair. Okay. Okay, cool. Okay. Yeah. So if we go on to the next question, um, how would you get the most out of your ILA review sessions? Like I know some people take notes. Um, do you add to your group doc or do you just listen along? Um, I'll go first this time, Delena. So um, for ILA review sessions, I think the most important thing is that you come as prepared as you can. I know sometimes it's hard to have answered all the questions 
to the, your best ability, but kind of at least know what is going on for each aspect. It's not so much as in, um, important to take notes. Obviously, try to take notes because the important things they will say, like what you need to prepare for exams, they will tell you um, or they'll try and hint at it. Um, but um, for note taking, I kind of just take my own notes rather than add to the group because um, how the group presents the work is not necessarily how I would present the work. So it's not um, always something that I refer to back. Um, so I kind of just take my own notes and try to show up prepared as much as I can. Yeah. Delina, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I think it's really important what you were saying about coming to the session prepared and like how it's a bit hard to know like your entire ILA because different people have been assigned different things. But I feel like even just skimming over it just for a couple of seconds, just so you know what's actually going on in the class and you're not just like sitting there clueless and not really getting anything out of the session. So yeah, it's really important to just skim through it even just for a bit before coming just so you get a general idea of what's going on. And I think recently in ILA, um, Dr. Lekas has started making these like handy like class collaboration documents so like she would invite the entire cohort to one document and then everyone would just put all their stuff onto like all the ILA groups would just put all their stuff onto the one document and then she would summarize it after the session so just like cut back on all the stuff that um like we don't need or is a bit excessive and then post it to my uni so everyone has like a bit of everyone's ILA like work all in that one document all from our review session so that's pretty handy that's just recently being done I guess and um if you don't like if you're just sitting in the class like aimlessly which you shouldn't be doing in the first place but if you do end up there somehow then I think that um word doc that collaborative cohort group doc that um, Dr. Lekas has started doing in most ILA sessions. I don't know if it's in all, but that thing does come in, like, does, does come really handy if you need it when the time comes. So, yeah. That sounds so good. Like, because having someone as knowledgeable as Dr. Lekas, like, tell you guys basically what the key points are. Because I know, like, especially in the first few years where I didn't know anything about clinical dentistry, like, actually understanding how much should I be writing down and how much of this is actually relevant is so hard. Because you could jump onto, like, a research article, some PhD student publish, and delve straight into, like, rheumatic heart disease. But that might not be what you need. And then, so I think it is definitely super helpful to have that. Yeah, just as a reference point and kind of just, um, yeah, provide some guidance. Yeah, definitely. Sometimes she also like um, before the review session, she would cut bits out of each ILA group's um, document and then just copy paste like an important section into this one big document and they just go over it in the session. So she would take like the most important parts out of each like group's work and send it out to everyone. So, you like you know what she's looking for, you know what you're supposed to, like how detailed you have to be or like um, you get an idea of what other groups are doing that Dr. Lekas finds ideal, which is really useful. So um, going off of what you said about not knowing how much detail to go in, I think that if that's being done, then that would be really useful. If like, yeah, you could just use that as like how much detail you need to go into. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Is that something that you guys have had experience with, Ella? Yeah, yeah, we have in a few of our ILAs had that. And it's good. It's just like a little cheat sheet, I guess. 
Yeah, it's really useful. Yeah, instead of just like going off on our own and like going down a rabbit hole of information and just not knowing where to stop. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. I feel like, wow, you kids have it so easy these days. <laughs> like back in my day, I had to be everything. <laughs> oh, okay. Does that, does that answer the second question, Ella? Yeah, definitely. That's good. Okay. okay. So the third question, probably what everybody wants to know, is what are the key things that you need to take away from second year ILA? Um, I feel like this is kind of difficult to answer in the sense I don't really remember what was in second year ILA. Um, I think like how to probably structure your answers, like categorise them with regards to key issues. How do you actually order your key issues? Um, and like how do you describe like an image that's been provided? Stuff like that is probably what I would say um, you need to take away. Like, for example, if they'd be like, okay, um, what do you see in this bite wing? You have to say, okay, this is a right-hand side molar bite wing, the following teeth are imaged, these, um, you, and you, can, you can't say, oh, like one six distal decay. You have to say, oh, like radiolucency indicative of decay, 60% into dentine like stuff like that like how do you actually write stuff down I would say um is probably pretty important that but that's probably across all year levels just because I don't really remember exactly what happened in second year I don't know what about what about you Delina how would you answer this question yeah um I think like you like just like um what you're saying I don't think you need to get into like all the nitty-gritty details like list out like all the different genes that contribute to this one medical condition or something like no no one's going to expect you to remember all of them but um just like the bigger concepts and things you can apply to like other scenarios like um how to find the key issues and list it all out in a systematic order and like you know reading bite wings and all that and um reading a scenario and plucking out the important parts um and obviously there's also the theoretical side so obviously you know like for in this case, you know, you, you um, the main things, you know, you've got to know like the differences between rheumatic heart disease and like all that stuff. Um, but yeah, maybe like major concepts, not like the tiny little details that you're finding in like the research articles and all that. But yeah. 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 Does that answer the question, Ella? Yeah, I think it does. I think it's good to think about like um, how even though we do talk about all these details in ILA, it's not always, it's more about like knowing the concepts and being able to apply that to a different scenario. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard. It's hard because I can't quite remember now what it was like being in second year. And it, my second year experience was like during peak COVID, which is probably really different to you guys as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Should we go on to the last question? Yes. So last question is, do you have any general ILA experience that you would like to share with younger years? Um, probably just go to the ILA sessions, man. Just, just, just go, try your best, um, um, learn as much as you can. But I know it's hard. Like for me, I think I, I really started loving it like when I – could see the clinical application when I started seeing patients. Um, but just make out, make the most 
that you can out of the sessions. Because I remember there was this one ILA where this guy had a swelling, like, and it was like here, I don't know. Do you guys remember that one? Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, I didn't really pay attention. And now it's like, swellings are like a big thing in dentistry. <laughs> like it is the big thing. Like That's what you send to OMFS for. Um, and I just, I never really understood. Now I have to self-teach like all the, all the different spaces, the submandibular spaces. Um, I think just like try and collaborate with your friends um, and see what every, what everyone else thinks. Um, but yeah, yeah. Just show up, do your best, try and show up prepared. Yeah. And you'll be right. Like in fourth year, it's like, it's like, okay, I know this and I'm genuinely not learning it because I'm like, okay, what if I have a patient with this in the future? Like, and I can directly see the relevance, but in second year, I understand like you guys are just seeing very healthy friends and family. Like no one is going to have rheumatic heart disease, hopefully. So yeah. Yeah. How about you, Delina? How would you answer this? What tips and tricks? Um, I think definitely attending ILA is pretty important because, like, you know, ILA is the, like, the thing that ties all your content together. Um, it basically ties everything together. So it's, like, it's really nice to go and just see how everything, um, like, works together in a clinical scenario that you could possibly see in the future. And, yeah, like you're saying, like, um, I know for a second year, I didn't really pay attention much either just because, like, you know, my patients didn't have any issues. And I know I was like, oh, I don't even know this now. It's all good. I'll just learn it later. But um, being in the third year and I'm getting patients with, like, some funky, like, medical histories and I'm like, wow, okay, like, I need to go back to my second year content. Whoops. Like, yeah, it's like you start to understand it um, a bit later. But, yeah, so I, I guess it's better to, like, focus now so you don't have to like relearn all this stuff in the future um and I guess like um also in terms of like group work and stuff not from my personal experience but I think I've heard of other people who for them um delegating group work and tasks actually actually takes up the most time so like people would leave like like people wouldn't even reply to like messages until like weeks and weeks later and so like almost like three quarters of the time that you had to do ILA is gone, just like delegating tasks and like you'd say something in the group chat and then people wouldn't even reply until like two weeks later and be like, oh, okay, sure, I'll do question four. I'm like, what's your group doing? <laughs> Jesus, like, and then my friends would have to like rush their ILA parts at the end just because like they spent so much time just delegating tasks and there wasn't much like communication happening so I think just you know check your messages please just don't put your groups through the struggle um it's really uh stressful towards the end so probably don't do that yeah keep on top of it delegate task early yeah honestly at this point like it's probably very easy for me to say but um like when I started dentistry, I was like, oh my gosh, I want to be friends with everyone. I want to be nice with everyone. I care about how people think of me. But now I'm like, you just have to be really assertive. You're like, you list out all the examples and you're like, I'm doing question one. Like if you guys want to delegate, then you guys like, you guys fight over it. But at, cause at some point, like at this point in fourth year, like I'm really in the crux of fourth year like there's no time and there's no energy to be nice anymore like if people want to do stuff then they'll do it and if they don't then that's on them and 
it's it's not like you being mean. It's like like people will be like, you know what? Fair enough. Like like you have this expectation, and like you want to do question one, you can just do it. Like it's, I think it's very fair to just not tolerate people who are very late to responses anymore. Um, especially if that means that you have to do ILA really rushed and you're compromising your own learning, which you pay for. Um, so yeah, I know it's way easier said than done and it's only really something that I've employed this year, but I think it's totally fair to be more assertive, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I think like at the beginning, you're kind of thinking like, oh, I don't know if they want this question. Like, I'll just wait until they reply. Cause like, I don't know if I'm being rude for taking the question away from them. And you just wait for them to reply until it's like, like, like the day after ILA is due or something. And then later on, you're just like, I don't have time for this. Like, I'll just take this question. You guys go do your own thing. I'm, I'm going to go do my own thing. And yeah, it's just everyone off on their own. So yeah. Yeah, honestly, like if people can post their be real on time, then they can see a message on, <laughs> on Messenger. I mean, let's be real. They just don't want to reply. They just don't care yet. So like, yeah, they, they can do it. Just try your best to be assertive. You, you, you deserve that much respect for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I'm motivational. <laughs> Thank you. This is like, this is like the second to last um, Al Dente podcast and we're finally getting to motivational <laughs> speeches. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, does that kind of answer the questions, Ella, do you reckon? I think it does. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Anything else that you guys would like to add before we wrap up this episode? This very short, very fast, effective episode. Good. That's how we like ILA. <laughs> fast and effective. Exactly. Okay. Um, if there's nothing else, then um, we would like to wrap up this episode. So we'll acknowledge. We would like to acknowledge and pay respects to the owners of the land we are privileged to record the Al Dente podcast on, the Ghana people, the traditional custodians of the land, waterways and skies across Adelaide. We thank them for sharing and caring for the land on which we are able to share our experiences. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and we share our friendship and our kindness. And as usual, thank you so much to Chris for editing our um, this episode. Hopefully it's a lot, e much easier to edit than the ball episode. Um, and don't forget to subscribe through our Spotify and Apple Music. Thank you. Thank you.